Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. In today's episode, in a moment, we'll be hearing from Tony Williams, who was a navigator in mosquitoes and then became a pilot in vampires and cameras. But before we get to that, I'm going to have a talk with Al Marshall. Hi, Al. It's uh, good to have you back on the show. We've had you on a couple of times in the past with the Bristol Freighter and um, on one of the forum shows. Uh, but it's good to have you back. Yeah, thanks, Dave. Yeah, good to be back. Yeah, you're looking well. <laughs> you're, um, you're involved in a really interesting project at the moment. And the reason we've got you on uh, just at the beginning of this mosquito-themed show is to talk about the Mosquito Project. Um, the mosquito is moving across from uh, Mapua to Omaka, uh, and this is the mosquito that was saved by John Smith. So can you give, just the listeners out there who don't know anything about this mosquito and John Smith, can you give a quick brief overview of uh, who he was and what he did and how this mosquito ended up being saved? Yeah, yeah, well, um, John clearly was uh, became very well known amongst the vintage warbird uh, heritage um, scene in New Zealand because of his incredible foresight in, in, uh, in choosing to purchase these aeroplanes at, at quite a young age um, with a view to preserving them, keeping them. And uh, there weren't many like him at that time in the in the 1950s when these, these aeroplanes were abundant in many cases. Um, and going for what you'd look at today as cheap money, but of course in those days, you know, he did a lot of that in his late teens, early 20s. Yeah. When you know the mosquito itself, I think I believe it was 80 pounds, right. uh, which would be an awful lot of money. Um, so a person like him that that found that sort of money and made it happen, um, and then looked after them for so long, quite an incredible person. Absolutely. And, and we're left with some quite incredible machines as a result. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got the De Havilland mosquito. Uh, there were two P40s, uh, a Mustang, a couple of Harvards, uh, some vampires. Um, in Oxford, uh, remains of another mosquito in there. I mean, it's just incredible um, collection of aircraft that, that he stored. And uh, as I say, it was quite well known uh, in the New Zealand aviation scene or the warbird aviation scene. He was a really well-known character and um, a bit of a hermit. Um, but he... Uh, you know, he, now he passed away in August last year and the collection uh, passed to the family and they've been dispersing it and the mosquito is now moving, still in their position, but it's moving to Omaka. So can you tell us about that? Because you've been uh, working on it as the team leader. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess, first of all, you know, we've, we've uh, talked about John and, and his contribution and, and now we really have to recognise the, the family themselves that have chosen to you know, make this airplane, which was, I won't say it was on public display by any stretch, it, it, it wasn't easy to get to uh, mm. in, its, in its shed in Mapua, but for the, the family to choose to make this airplane available to anyone now to come and visit, and also and, and the, the amount that we're sharing online, it means anyone in the world can come and view what we're doing and, and, and enjoy this airplane. So, uh, yeah, you know, six months ago, I was quite happily flying my 737 around the Tasman and, and the Pacific, and of course, the, the virus turned up. Yeah. And uh, I became a very expensive problem for my airline with a very easy, easy solution. So when we all got uh, uh, made redundant, uh, it took a while for me to think, right, what's next? And what's next was just to spend time in my workshop and, uh, and think through where, we were, where I was headed 
and um, it's quite happily building a steam locomotive until you know three or four weeks ago when the team from Omaka thought that I'd be more useful up there helping just um, manage the um, the relocation of this aeroplane and then and then give it some direction to get it to, to a stage where we can present it to people that want to come and see it so um, quite literally there's there's nothing I'd rather be doing right now it's um, it's it's just awesome it's just um, yeah and I've, I've visited that airplane three times over over the years um, you know when I was a little young warbird nutter like many of us were or perhaps still are yeah like I say I visited that place and it was um, stuff dreams are made of literally, quite literally yeah, yeah so absolutely. to be invited to um, to come and help out um, put a team together and, and, and get this airplane like I say, from Mapua to Omaka, and then put it on display. It's um, yeah, yeah. It's 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 it is literally awesome. It's very cool. Fantastic. And uh, for the listeners out there, your background is you started as an engineer in the uh, or, or an aircraft um, technician in the Air Force, uh, and then you became a pilot in the Air Force, and then you went into commercial aviation. Uh, and you have a real knack for old aircraft and, and engineering, uh, and many people have followed over the years um, uh, your interaction with the Bristol Freighter at uh, at Omarka, and you got what was a dead aircraft running again and taxiing again and made sort of a bit of a worldwide sensation there um, to get those big Hercules engines going again. And so, you know, I, I honestly can't think of anyone else that would be, you know, better for this team as well uh you know all oh the cheers Dave. yeah yeah no, and you know all the omaka guys as well and what a team you've got there too i mean just go through who's who's actually working with you there there's such a group of people involved in this yeah well um i don't believe there's anything that can't be done at omaka the, the people that we have here the experience and their backgrounds um by oh, gee there's literally you know you, you see what happens every two years with the surprises that come out of the classic fighters yeah air show and, yeah. and just the brains and the cleverness and the, the community that we have. Uh, and in some cases, it feels like a family. And the, um, the people that we have here. Uh, so presently, there's we just the the first visit that we took to Mapua to get the aircraft uh, in the disassembly phase. You know, we were easily able to put our hands on 20 people. Yeah. And and none of those people had to be told or shown what to do. You know, you just put them. Two people on an engine, two people on the cell, the propellers, uh, some of the interior stuff. Uh, it was it was a big group, and, and and as the bigger parts of the aircraft have come off and have been shifted back to a marker, now we're just sort of whittling down the, the team because this this next visit that we're looking at on the weekend, there's only really jobs to be done in the cockpit and the bomb bay, and um, as you can imagine, the cockpit's a, a tight squeeze and the bomb bay is not made for people, so. Um, yeah, the, the team that we have, um, you've got to give credit to to Bill Reed, Mike Nichols, and John Saunders. Yep. They, they were asked by the family to sort of help put the um, the collection, um, find out exactly what was in the collection to start with, and then start finding people that would be best placed to either take them on or um, or do something with. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, big big group of people that. Um, yeah, are going to make a quite a, a very cool result for the for this aircraft and and the two others, the P40 and the Tiger Moth, that are are going to be on display at the AHC. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and you've got um, you've got the the crew from Gem Aviation, um, you know, Jay McIntyre's 
um, workshop there, uh, there's been you know involvement in this aircraft move from uh, the guys out of the Classic Wings office and the um, and CAMS as well, Tony Weidenberg's uh, uh, company. Um, AHC, AHC staff are involved, um, you know, and your right-hand man, Marty, of course, from Jim, uh, Marty Nichols is, um, you know, he's he's working on the on the aircraft with you. Um, I mean, it's it's a dream team. And then there's the Yak Three team as well. I saw some of them have been involved. That's um, right. Yeah, and, and they've all they've all got backgrounds and and experience that are just useful. You know, the yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the full noise, uh, the Yak Three team. Um, you know, Graham used to, before he went flying with the Air Force, uh, he was also a tradesman, mm, so he's yep. still got some good skills there. And and yeah, um, one of the one of the CCAT uh, instructors from the Aero Club had a heavy truck license, so when we took the Merlins off, he was able to talk to one of his students who had a construction company, Findlater Construction. So their one of their their trucks became the transport for these two Merlins, and uh, it's just things like that. People know people and. And especially in, in the Amaka group, these people just want to just want to help. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And of course, when the actual big move comes, when the whole uh, the aircraft itself, I mean, at the at the moment it's only parts that you can take off uh, that have gone to Amaka. But when the big move comes, um, the dream team from Avspex are coming down to yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, I was do just that as well. Warren Denham today about that and uh, and the timing of uh, of getting those guys. Uh, down down to uh, Mapu, most of their equipment is there waiting for us. So yep. these little teams that we have working on the weekends, like I say, there's just really just equipment to come out of the bomb bay now, and just a, some linkages and stuff to disconnect from the from the cockpit. And 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 that will be that'll be a big, you know, you, you read the manuals on how these aircraft come apart, and and that that joint that sits between the the cockpit and the rear fuselage above the wing. It's it's I won't say it's fragile, but it's the smallest part of the aircraft, and and the, the manuals that you read that, that talk about the disassembly and the shipping or the, the transport of these airplanes, they all talk about this this piece of timber that supports the uh, the forward cockpit, the forward fuselage, and the the care that goes into shifting a machine like that. That when when it comes from reading it from the manual, they're talking about a serviceable airplane or a new one. Yeah. let alone an aircraft that's um, nudging 80 years old but, yeah yeah so it'll, it'll be um it'll be a big day when it comes to you know you have to lift you have to lift the aircraft or jacket clear of the ground to either take the the wheels off it but you need to retract the undercarriage to get the to get the fuselage so that you can lower it in the, in the flying position close to the ground right level it and then un- unbolt the the fuselage from the wing and that that careful lift Will be the will be interesting, and then but like I say, the the gear's waiting for us in the Mapua, and those the guys that know more about mosquitoes than anyone uh, are going to help out. But th- doesn't this just make you think though? Uh, this is like a team of twenty people already involved. The aspects guys are coming down to do this uh, as well, and you've got all the gear there. And John Smith did it with just him and his brother and his dad, and a little was it a Bedford truck or something. He did did that, taking it from Blenheim across to Mapua and uh, you know reassembling that whole thing by himself. Yeah, and that's that's something we look at. You know, we look at pictures of because the aircraft he did he did have to cut the fuselage behind the wing mm. and, and cut the the wings outboard of the engines to make it manageable because he didn't have the gear 
you know, to um, transport it across to Nelson. And, and the, the haste that the Air Force uh, asked him to get the aircraft off the airfield, once he paid the money, uh, it basically had to be gone that night. Yeah. And, of course, there's the stories about him knocking on all the farmers' doors around the place, uh, around the airfield, asking if he could tow it through the fence and um, and just store it clear of the airfield while he put his um, got his wits about him. And, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we're taking all this care. You know, we're taking the Merlins off a few weekends ago. We had a radio-controlled high-ab crane that, you know, the, the operator could be next to the, the bolts as they were coming out. And, and then you think about John and George and his dad that put the thing back together again with a, a wooden A-frame yeah. piece of timber, and um, they didn't have any gear to support the aircraft and trestle it, so the, the whole thing was just laid out like like a model aircraft on the ground in five big pieces, and they just pushed them together and propped them up with timber, and, and he did make it quite a nice job of... You have to be shown where those repairs and those joints are to see where he put the aircraft back together. So it's um, yeah, and and here we are planning logistically everything we need to do to get the thing apart again. Yeah, and, um, that's yeah, just so, incredible, incredible. Yeah, so, and uh, there's there's pictures of his car. You know, I, I don't think he actually had a truck. I've, I've seen the rear fuselage on a trailer behind. I think it was a Humber, and they had to take the the car needed to have have a break halfway up the hill, getting it from. You know, because it was it was working pretty hard. And, yeah. And, and the cool thing is, if you visit that property now, a lot of those cars that he you know collected the P40s from Rocker here, those Morris miners are still still on that property. Yeah. And um, yeah, and they're that's, a bit of history in themselves. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So um, people can follow along uh, now. You've in the past week, you've um, you guys have down there have set up a Facebook page, which is the Omaka John Smith Mosquito Project page. Mm. Um, so there's lots of updates are going to be going up on there, uh, and you've you and uh, Gavin Conroy, um, the world famous photographer and also member of the Gem team, um, he uh, he's filmed a, a, an update with you, um, and there will be more of those coming, right? Yeah, yeah, that was Gavin's idea, just to just to share it a, a little bit. And uh, that, that video that that we made, the, the first one was just made on his phone. And right. we're hoping to do um, perhaps one of those a week. Um, yeah. Whether or not we we can get Gavin to come with us on Sunday um, to Mapua, we'll see. But uh, we've certainly got the two Merlins in storage, and and that, there's a bit of a story when you poke around those engines, uh, just looking at them as well. So so we do want to make make um, video updates, perhaps perhaps weekly. I know the AHC has a, a question and answer page. They're, they're encouraging people to put questions to the group, and we'll sit down one day and, and answer them. And yep. um, and I've also got a little page on that of just interesting stuff that that we see as as the airplane comes apart. You think that's pretty cool, and and it's stuff like that you take a photo of and and remember it yep. and post it to this page because there is there is stuff. There's you know we're finding handwriting from uh, people that built the aircraft. Uh, you can see identities of the aircraft as engine cowlings have gone between one and the other, and you can see, you know, the the identities of different aircraft that parts have belonged to. And okay, uh, pencil markings from when they're putting camouflage and um, placards on the aircraft. You can see as we're bringing the old the old finished back. You can you can see these pencil markings, and and that's that's pretty cool because we use those same pencil markings to put the new stuff back on. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, and um, we'll have the link to that uh, Facebook page in our show notes, um, so people can go there and join. Um, <clears throat> that's a it's a group. Um, 
Now, the other thing we need to mention too is uh, Omaka Warbird Rescue Give a Little page. Now, you're raising money to make all this actually uh, viable. Um, so uh, tell us, uh, if people give a donation, what, what actually happens with it? Yeah, well, there's there's a certain cost. I, I, I look at the um, the aspects tools and, and lifting gear that that have turned up in Mapua, and it's it's just the small parts. Like, gee, I won't say they're small. They're um, obviously big pieces of steel. Just the logistics of getting them from Ardmore to Mapua yeah. in itself uh, can't be done uh, easily or cheaply. So it's it's stuff like that that you don't really see. You know, there will be a certain amount of that. Um, give a little page will be used for materials, you know, to, to do the job, but it's it's uh, involving people and companies that are certainly giving their time. Uh, that, um, for example, those, you know, the big lifting beams and, and transport gear for the aircraft and the wing. Yeah, it's it's, it's stuff like that that the, the Give a Little page uh, will be used for. Yep, and, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Well, thank you very much, Al. I really appreciate your time and I uh, should let you get back to it. All right. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. Yeah. Like I say, we'll we'll, um, we'll share this thing as much as we can with people, and um, and uh, yeah, like I said, that 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 give a little page is uh, is there for basically just to speed things up and make things happen. Yep. And um, yeah, yeah. See awesome. what we can come up, up with. Cool. Good luck. And now we'll get on with the uh, rest of the interview. Sydney Arthur Williams. And you're known as Tony? And known as Tony. Okay, and uh, your place of birth? Danny Burke, Hawke's Bay. Okay, um, and can you tell me how did you get interested in aviation to start with? Well, I was um, keen on model aeroplanes and all that type of thing, and um, as soon as I turned 16, the Air Training Corps opened up in Danny Burke. And I was the very first one to join. I was there queued up waiting for the doors to open. Yeah. While I was in the ATC, I did my Air Force pre-entry examination. And as soon as I turned 18, um, I joined the Air Force. That was at the end of the war. And I only did five months with the Air Force then. Pilot training, I was a pilot grading school, which I'd passed that. Uh, then we were all kicked out after the war. Um, then I went back to Danny Burke and worked there for another two years. Okay, so so you were aiming to become a pilot during the war, sort of. Yes, thing, yeah. definitely. Okay, um, so can you tell me about that that whole si that system that you went through to try and get in then? That... Yes, well, at the ATC they had lectures in the um, in the club rooms, but also they had night classes at the Danibeck High School, and we used to learn all about navigation and things like that. Then we had the interviews with the Air Force to see if we were suitable. And then when I went into the Air Force in 1945, it was a pilot grading school. Mm -hmm. So I had to go to be graded to pick if you're suitable to be a pilot. I was the one who was selected um, and went solo on the Tiger Moth. Yeah. Um, and then quite happy until the war finished, then I was sent home. <laughs> okay. So where was that pilot grading school? Down at Tyree in Dunedin. Oh, right. Okay. So you actually were in the Air Force during the war as such? Yes. Right, okay. Yes. Oh, right. Well, that's, you must be one of the youngest ones. <laughs> uh, might be older than you think. <laughs> well, I was just trying to do the calculation, 1926. Mm. Um, oh, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's quite interesting. So you did actually get to go solo, and yes. how many hours did you do? I only did the 10, Okay. but then we did the uh, more training, but then the war finished. 
That's all I did. Uh, and then you thought it was all over, went home, yes, and didn't think about it for a while. Yes, thought about it for quite some time, but nothing was happening after the war. No one was recruiting yeah. um, until 19, end of 1947. The Air Force decided they'd recruit post-war courses, so I applied once again, went through all the interviews and that type of thing. Um, and this time I was selected as a navigator. I okay. uh, wanted to be a pilot, but I thought by being a navigator, at least I'm in the Air Force. Yeah. Um, so then I selected on number one post-work course. There were 12 pilots and 8 navigators, that's all. Okay. 11 pilots finished and 7 navigators finished. Oh, right. And you went through on the same course? Yes. Oh, right. <coughs> so how, how did that work? Because the pilots were normally on a separate course from navigators during the war, weren't they? Well, we're all trained at Wigram, but the pilots did their course training, and we did our navigation training. They did theirs on, on Harvards, mm -hmm. and we did ours on Ansons and DC-3s. Oh, yeah. um, when we'd finished our navigation course, we then went on to a further wireless operators course, because they're training certain navigators to be navigator and a wireless operator. Right. You had to have a, uh, up to 24 words a minute, 20 words a minute in Morse code as well. Yep. We did all the navigation and all the signal work. Okay. So then we qualified as a nav wireless op. Okay, wow. That's, uh, that's really interesting actually. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't get a chance to talk to too many people who were training or, or in just after the war and that, mm. I think they called it the interim Air Force, didn't they? Yeah. Period. yeah. Um, so tell me about the Ansons, what were they like? <laughs> Oh, they were just an old, old sort of an old aeroplane, twin-engine aeroplane. The most unusual thing about it, you had to wind the undercarriage up and down. Yeah. 140 turns here. Yeah. But we did all our navigation training on those, and then we did our radio training on it, but also transport sent down the DC-3s, and we did trips to the Chathams for final navigation. Mm. Oh, right, okay. Mm. So that would have been quite exciting. Exciting. Mm, very interesting. Mm. Did, did you actually land or was it just a... Oh no, through just navigation there, came back again. Just a waypoint sort of thing? Yeah. Oh, right, okay. That's a long way for a one-way one -way trip. That's right. <laughs> it is, isn't it? And you managed to find it okay? Yes, no trouble at all. Obviously no. you, you progressed, you didn't yeah. get kicked off the course. <laughs> yeah. All right, and so once you had uh, completed your training, or actually before we um, go on, what was Wigram like at that stage? Uh, was it fairly quiet or...? Uh, yes, it was fairly quiet, but then the Harvards were starting up, flying training was starting again. Okay. We were starting to get sort of a bit more life, yes. Right, yeah. okay, okay. Um, so where did you progress to once you had your navigation ticket? Well, the pilots had gone on ahead of us. They finished before us and they went to Ohakim and did their conversion on Oxford aeroplanes. Then yeah. when we finished, we went to Ohakia and we did our another course, another training course on the Oxfords and their wireless op training, um, and there for about all three or four months. Then they decided where to post us of the seven navigators, three of us were posted to mosquitoes, because oh, right. you had to have a, both qualifications to be on mosquitoes. Right, right. So those, um, uh, 
those Oxfords, were they operated by 14 Squadron? Yes. Oh, right, okay. <coughs> I've always wondered what they were doing with Oxfords yeah, at that time, because right. yeah, you'd yeah, see on paper yeah, that yeah, yeah, they had Oxfords, right. but no, it was I was 14 thinking, what were they doing? Yeah, it was 14 Squadron. Oh, right, so that's sort of almost an operational training unit at that stage. Well, it was, it was conversion, because yeah. at those days the uh, Mosquitoes were 75 Squadron. Mm, yeah, mm. yeah. And that must have been pretty exciting when you got told you were going to Mosquitoes. Great. Yes, yes. Well, we didn't have much of a choice. You were selected, yeah. and uh, but you had to be qualified in both and couldn't cope with both because you're pretty busy. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Mm. So, at what um, what stage was that? What year did you get onto mosquitoes? Nineteen forty nine, nineteen fifty. Okay, yeah. yeah. So they're all fairly still quite. Uh, Quite a new aircraft at that stage. I mean, yes, well, they've flown out from the UK around about 1947 and 48. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, just tell me about 75 Squadron then, getting onto the squadron. What was that like? Great. Fantastic. Um, in our system, we had a go through as a navigator, grade four, grade three, and that type of thing and had the privilege of living in the sergeant's mess for 12 months yeah. and that was fantastic um, and then after about 12 months then certain people were selected to have a commission and i was one of those selected and was commissioned but the life in the squadron was good straight after the war it was sort of all old wartime people uh, my boss was an ex ex sort of uh, prisoner of war in japan um, a chap called Johnny Checkers, you might have heard mm -hmm. of Wing Commander yeah. Checkers. Yeah. He was a Wing Commander flying. All the old sort of, you know, Pathfinders and DFCs. It was a fantastic time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was there for about two and a half years until they broke up the Mosquito Squadron. They decided they'd disband the Mosquito Squadron and they were all posted elsewhere. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So, what do you remember about the type of flying that you were doing? Uh, and mosquitoes, and mosquitoes yeah. fantastic. <clears throat> the um, it was all hand flying, of course. It's normally all operating at a, about a thousand feet, but then sometimes we'd do low level as well. Uh, and the navigator would do have a nav drift site on the floor. You'd have to get down on your hands and knees to do your drift and all that type of thing. Mm -hmm. You'd hop back, turn around, tune up your radio, send all your signals, get all your beacons, that type of thing, all done on a clipboard. All your navigation was done on a compass and a clipboard and a drift site. Right. Okay. And we still coped all right. Uh, but the way the great thing was, the squadron commander would now and again say, let's go and show the flag. And the squadron might get half a dozen mosquitoes and just fly around the town, flying low over the towns, you know, post-war, to show the flag. Yeah. Wow. And when we <clears throat> did, did low level, it was low level. Hundred <laughs> yeah. feet? Just about, yeah. Okay. <laughs> that would have been quite impressive. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And um, was there much of the sort of bombing and gunnery practice? Yes, <clears throat> yes, we did the, um, it was mainly the 20 mil cannons on, on those, and that was the thing that they, they would do, yeah. That was handled all by the pilot. Not the navigator. So you were just along for the ride? For just, we went as a two-man crew, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what was that like? That must have been quite exciting. Good, great. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. 
I know that they uh, sunk a few ships or a couple of ships. Yes, involved in that. well, that's right. Yes, well, at the end of the, um, they had a boat called the Lutterworth. And that was sort of towed out into Cook Strait, and that was target prank. They wanted to sink it, so the squadron went went out there and with their cannons and and sank it. Yeah. And, and you were you were on that one? Or? No, I wasn't on that trip. Right. Worse luck, no. Okay. But the others weren't on. Anyhow, then we used to do um, uh, sort of exercises with the uh, territorial air force. They were flying the Mustangs. So we used to do attacking them, and they'd attack us and that type of thing. Post war. Mm. That'd be quite but exciting. Very exciting. Yeah. So who usually sort of came out best on that? Was it the, the full-time guys, you guys? Or yes, normally the mosquitoes, yes. Okay. More experienced because we, we're full-time. Mm. Okay. But it's interesting because a lot of those territorial guys had flown in the Pacific and stuff like that. Hadn't yes, they? They that's right. Experienced, but they probably just didn't have Not current. Not current. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, it must have been quite good when they had their... Uh, exercises when you'd all get together in the mess sort of afterwards and yes, swap yeah. stories and... It was a, actually was a great life, the actual Air Force life. Uh, a young, single, in the sergeant's mess, then in the officer's mess. It was really it's a great life, you know, when you're only in your twenties. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yep. Um, now, one of the things that I know that was on the squadron around that period was the Meteor. Do you remember that? Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Now, what, what can you tell me about that? Nothing much. I don't know much about the meteor. Because right, you never no. would have got to go off. No, nothing. No, no. Yeah. You, you would have seen it around, I guess. Yeah, but that's all. But that, that, that had nothing much to do with it. No. Right. Okay. Uh, so, seventy-five squadron had around about twenty of the mosquitoes operational, or uh, I couldn't tell you exactly how many are operational. Most of you haven't scored, I think, at times. Fly pass would be maybe eight or nine, but that's about all. Hmm. Okay, okay, right. It's quite amazing, really, when we've got 80 of them and most of them just sat there doing nothing. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and I also know that 14 Squadron and 75 Squadron in those days had quite a rivalry. Oh, yes, yes. Well, that was 14, the Oxfords were replaced with the Vampires. Um, and then we were, um, it was, well, there was a bit of rivalry between the two of them. Um, and I always remember one day the vampires were showing off doing some low flying, and two of our senior people, a chap called Staples, another one called Scott, went away in two separate mosquitoes, came f roaring over the field at Ohakia with one engine feathered, and did a barrel roll in front of the vampires. To say, how's that? <laughs> wow, that's pretty yeah. good. Yeah. So, uh, I guess you would have known that eventually you were going to get the vampires on the squadron, and that would be the end of it for Navigate. Yes. Well, that's that was not quite because the um, we still had Canberra's coming up as well. Of course. Yeah. yeah. And I was on those as well. Right. Okay. So when the squadron, the actual squadron broke up and they got rid of all the mosquitoes um, and two of us, actually one of the, of the three off our course, one was killed in, a, in an aircraft crash and the two of us were then posted to have instructors course. And then while we're down there, in the meantime the Air Force bought the uh, de Havilland Doves right. and I was on the ferry duties. We'd go to England 
and sort of the first time we actually worked with de Havilland itself, lived at an English pub, yep. uh, and then picked up aircraft, ferried them out to New Zealand, then I went back and did another trip. In the meantime, I'd been applying for a pilot's course, and then when I came back after the second trip, I went on to a pilot's course. Oh, right, okay, mm. okay. So, um, I'll just step back to the mosquitoes. When you were on 75 Squadron, did you normally have a set pilot as your crew, or did you mix and match? Uh, normally a set pilot. Okay. Now, so and again, now and again you fly with someone different, yep. but you're crewed up with, with one particular chap, and I was through with one particular chap mainly all the time. Okay, so who was that? Noel, chap called Noel Fraser. Noel Fraser, okay. He's, he's dead now. Yep. Yep. And Fraser and I, we sort of uh, used to knock around together as mates, um, and we just sort of got together and crewed up. Hmm. Right, okay. Oh, excellent. <coughs> so was he one of the guys that came through on your course? Or yes, he was? he was on, yes. Yeah. Right. So I'd, I'd known him right from a cadet. We, we, we came through as cadets together. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, right, and so when you got on to the, um, the Devon Ferry uh, operation, there was two pilots on those? One pilot and one navigator, yeah. That was the reason you had to have a nav dub uh, and a single pilot. And so we'd just go pick them up and... Uh, Carry them out. Mm. So just the two of you, all that. Yes, way. yes. That's a long way too, isn't oh, it? Oh, used to take nineteen days to do it. How many stops? Oh, couldn't tell you offhand, but uh, well, maybe twenty, something like that, yep. something like that. Yeah. Where did you get? Can you remember the the route where you came through? Yes, it was from England to Marseille, down to Malta, down to Tobruk up to Cyprus, and you, you stop now and again for rest of that type of thing, and across through uh, Pakistan, India, um, and up to Burma, into Thailand, down through Malaya, down to Singapore, we'd stop for three days for the uh, engine overhauls and that type of thing. Then the long haul was from Singapore to Indonesia to Darwin. We left in the dark and arrived in the dark. That was a long haul. And that was into Darwin, then from Darwin to Cloncurry in the middle of Australia, and then from there to Brisbane. And then crossing the Tasman, we had to go via Norfolk. We didn't have the range. It had to be ideal conditions, no wind or tailwind, and had to go via Norfolk. So we sat there, then Norfolk, then down to Fenuapine. Wow, so you got, um, got to really see the world there. There's yes. a lot of, lot of places. And how many of them did you ferry? Only the, uh, the two. Two. Well, that's, that's still a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and then, because then when I came back after the second one, I went on to the pilot scores. Okay, okay. Um, now, they were straight out of the factory, weren't they? They were brand new. Yes, yes. Well, the very first one, I said, we, we actually uh, lived in a hotel opposite the Havilland factory. And we actually picked up the aeroplanes and flew off the Havilland strip. That was the first one. The second time, we picked up the aircraft and operated out of Hendon in London. Okay, yep, yep. With, wow. And lived at the Air Force Mess. Wow. Now, when you came through Cyprus, was 14 Squadron there by then? Uh, yes, yeah. So that would have been quite a good... That was good, region. yes, that's right, yeah. 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 So were you, uh, were you sort of thinking, oh, I'd love to be on one of those overseas exercise, like overseas operations like 14 Squadron had, or...? Oh yeah, I always wanted to fly jets. Yeah. 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 Okay. So w once you got the the Devons back here, yes. Um, you didn't stay with the Devons. You 
no, no, no. So where, where, where did you go then? Was it back to the... No, well, I did my instructors, you know, finished off instructing, then the pilot's course. Mm -hmm. Then I stayed at Wigram. I had to go down again to Tyree, again for another grading school, which I passed that. Yeah. Then I turned around and came back to Wigram and stay there till the junior course caught up to me because I didn't have to do all the junior work oh, right. um, and did my pilot's course and then after the pilot's course I was kept back to be an instructor so I stayed as an instructor um, for about 10 months and then I was posted for the, as an ordinary instructor to an instructor into the training school and I stayed there for another two years. Okay. Hmm. Oh, right. There are two schools as FTS and the CFS, yep. the Central Flying School, you most probably know, they train all the pilots. Yep. Well, then I was on the staff of the, that trained all the pilots, and while I was there, I was in the aer aerobatic formation team as well. You were? Oh, mm. right. Yes. Mm. So what year was that? That would be 1955 to 57. Okay. Um, so who else was in the team with you? Well, it all depends. Different people all the time. One yeah. stage there was Mike Palmer and Ian Gillard. Yeah. Another time there was the commanding officer, Squadron Leader Rowe. Then there was Tony West, they was in for a while. Then Dave Crooks was in there for a while. Oh, yeah, yeah. Down again, they sort of changed. Mm. Wow, okay. Mm. Um, so, uh, had you done air shows before with the mosquitoes or anything like that? Yes. Yeah. Tell me about that. Oh, I just fly past and that type of thing. Man. Wasn't much in the way of aerobatics? Or no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so, do you remember any sort of uh, vivid standout air shows that you did with the team, with the CFS team? Uh, not really, they're all, all the same thing. They, you sort of just sort of set routine, you come in at a certain time and yep. perform, you do your act and then disappear again. They're all, all standard. We used to practice at night, at about five o'clock at night, when the, all the flying was finished, calm, then we do our aerobatic practice. Uh, then, then we sort of head off and do the shows. Mm. Right, right. Oh, we did them all over the place. And you practice at Woodburn? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so that would have taken you to different places around the country? Oh yes, yeah. oh yes, yes. We're down to uh, oh, up, up Hamilton, Auckland. <laughs> Sorry, Mum, you have that? Tea or coffee? Like, cup, like oh, coffee. Cup of tea if you love it, thanks. Sorry? Cup of tea, please. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, we travel around the place for different shows, even down as far as um, um, Queenstown, that type of thing. Yeah. Right, okay, did you do the Queenstown Festival? I know that sometimes a team went for that. Um, I forget what it was, we went down there from some big festival once at the aerobatic show. Mm. Right. Yeah. Did you have, have any sort of incidents, any close, uh, you know, close goes in the air? Oh, just once. That was the only one that fit close where, where the actual, we touched, touched wings, that's all. Bit close, struck upside down, struck a bump in the aeroplanes, what have you, and a bit of a happening. And the pitot tube of the wing of the airspeed, mine, mine was all hanging, all bent with him, yeah. Oh, wow. That's all. Apart from that, they don't know. That's the only little incident. The rest were pretty good. <laughs> it must have given you a bit of a fright, though. 
suppose so. Because your airspeed indicator wouldn't be working when you went to land, would it? Didn't have to. Didn't need it. Formation. Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> That's lucky. <Yeah. laughs> so did you always land in formation? Not always, no. You sometimes you do a buzz and break. Yeah. Okay. It's very interesting, though. The uh, I've actually been trying to put together the history of all of the teams on, yeah. on my website. So yeah. um, this is good. I can yeah. add some more information. Yeah. There. You, you said you were in the Air Force yourself. Yep, I joined in 1989, uh, and I safety and surface. Yeah. Uh, uh, you, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know. You wouldn't know anyone that I knew then. Probably not. Although uh, you mentioned David Crooks, and I, yeah. I know him through Facebook. He's a friend on Facebook, yeah. And, yeah. and I know who he was, of course. Yeah. Because uh, he got to. He was the Air Vice Marshal, mm. finally. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, I may have met some of your contemporaries since then, of course. So, yeah. Uh, actually, did you know uh, Sonny Gaspard? Extremely well. Yep, I've I've met him and interviewed him. I was his best man. Oh really? Okay. Oh, okay. Uh, and he, he was the other one. I said there's on the course of two of us who commissioned. He was the other one. Right. Oh, okay. Mm. Yeah. Marshal Alexander Ross Gaspar. Yeah. I think he's still going, all right? Is he? Or? I don't know. I assume so. Yeah. That. Um, I I haven't. Um, it's been a couple of years, but I haven't seen any death murders come out. So no, no, um, no. I always follow that. I assume he's around. Mm. Um, yeah, he was up in Auckland when I. Well, he's lived lived in Campbell's Bay. I assume he's still there. He's been there for years. Thinking, yeah, I think he mm. was up there. Mm. I, I uh, caught up with him at Motat. Yeah, we've got a few mosquito guys yeah. together. Mm. Um, and who else is there? Uh, did you know uh, Rodney Delberg? Who? Rodney Dalberg. Rod Dalberg from yeah. Tauron, extremely well. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm hoping to go out and uh, interview him in a, maybe oh. next week. So. <laughs> Give him my regards. I will, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, he, he grew up here in Cambridge. Did he? Yeah. Oh, oh. oh, yes, Rod was on, we're in the same squad, we're in the Mosquito Squadron. Yes, of course, yeah, yeah. Oh, do you have thin milk or? Um, yeah, yep. Milk and sugar? Or? Uh, just milk, thanks. That's good, that makes two of us, that's what I have. Excellent. <laughs> oh yes, and knew Rod Delberg well. He was a num number two pilot's course. Okay. And I was a number one navigator's course. Yeah. Right, okay. Mm. Oh, and Dave Kofu was another one. I knew Dave extremely well. Yeah, he he died recently. Yeah. Mm. yeah, Dave was a master pilot on Mosquito as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I visited Dave um, in Tauranga some years ago, right. um, and, and Rod, of course. But no, Dave was an excellent, hell of a nice bloke. Yeah, he top, was. Top yeah. knot, yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, he was top dressing with, with Delberg. In top That's top. right. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yes, he died the other, oh, last week, I think yeah, it was last about week. 94. Yeah. Mm. I think he'd been ill for a while. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's all. That's that's the old days. <laughs> yeah, it's actually there's probably not many of those guys who were in World War Two and then carried on into the mosquitoes left. He might have been the last one. Ah, uh, yeah, it would be very not many at all. Really, I can't remember them. No. no. Um, what about? Uh, tell me about um, TO of seventy five. Oh. Um, Ernie Gartrell, great chap.
um, real straight bloke. Um, he was in the Air Force during the war and he was captured and spent some time as a prisoner of the Japanese in Singapore. Mm. I did not know that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then when he, <coughs> when he came out, he came over and he took over the um, squadron, 75 squadron. And actually, when in 1951, when they had the big wolf strike here in, in New Zealand, mm-hmm. it was Ernie Gartner went down to Wellington and he rang the whole procedure in the Wellington Wharf. Right. And he was so good that shipping people offered him a job and he turned it down and stayed in the Air Force. Right. I think he would have ended up as being a group captain, I think. Okay. Oh, right. But I knew him extremely well. Matter of fact, he used to sort of, um, sometimes I'd go to his house and sit with his, sit with his kids while he did something. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Oh, right. Well, not, not only that, <coughs> he was the OC at 75. Then when he came down to Wigram, he was the OC7 of CFS when I was there. Right, okay. Thank you. Thanks, Mother. Yeah, nice chap. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, then after that, Ernie Gartley ended up by being... Uh, wing Commander postings in the Air Department. So when when you um, became a pilot, mm. what was your first posting after that? Uh, was it instructing? Instructing. Yeah, and yes. then when did you get back on to flying on an operational squadron? Uh, not until... Um, no, well I'd, <clears throat> I said instructing and then um, I was told that I was going to go on to vampires and then at that stage they're buying Canberras. Mm-hmm. So in the meantime, I went over to sent to Australia, did a land air warfare course with the Australian Air Force, and then I went on to Vampires and converted on to Vampires, um, and then I went on to 75 Squadron Vampires. But the OCU of the Vampires suddenly found us short of instructors. So I was checked out as an instructor well, so I used to fly for 75 in the morning and instruct in the afternoon on, on jets. I was only there for about um, 12 months when I was sent to England, yeah. and they were when we first went to England to train with the Royal Air Force on the Canberras, and depending, the senior blokes went first, and uh, I was one of the very first two to train on Canberras. Okay. Myself and someone called Ian Gillard, he's an ex-Air Commodore, yep. retired. Yep. And we trained on Canberras, and then more crews coming through, coming through. Then we picked up the Canberras and ferried them to Singapore okay. and formed 75 Squadron in Singapore. Right, and mm. these are the least uh, Canberras, aren't they? They were least. Yes. Yeah, yeah they were B- B2s. I think B2s, I think they were, mm. Mm. from the Royal Air Force. Okay. Well, I'll just step back. Uh, you said you went to Australia and did the land warfare. Yeah, land air warfare course, yeah. What was. What did that involve? It involved sort of fighter attacks and stuff, tactics. Okay. Bomber and fighter tactics. Mm. What were you flying in? Vampires. Right, okay. So it was almost a bit like a Top Gun type school. Yes. Right. Yeah. Okay. And that must have been quite, uh, quite good. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I was <clears throat> Actually, looking back now, I was very fortunate that but I did my time as a navigator first, because mm. I've had everything that I had. A total of 17 years in the Air Force and virtually all flying. Okay. Wow. Mm. That's pretty good. Because mm. uh, most, pe- most people who 
we're known as pilots probably by maybe 12 years and they'd start that's to get right. a desk job, wouldn't they? That's right, yeah, yeah. well, that's, that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> right, so um, what did you think of the vampire? Great, great, yeah, good. Little and small, compact, fast, great. I used to love their weapons work. Okay. Mm. The gunnery and the bombing and that. It's just cowboy stuff. Yeah. Knuckleheads, <laughs> they, they used to call us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they were still knucks in my day. That's right. <laughs> so, um, and you were doing rocketry as well? Yes. Yeah. What was yeah. that like? Was that pretty cool? That good, pretty good, yeah. Were they quite accurate, or...? Yes, yeah, pretty good, yes, they're all pretty pretty, pretty accurate. You know, you had a, at the bombing range, you have it all set up, quadrants, and, and they'd line things up, and there'd be the target, and, and they could then caught up and say, 60 yards, or what have you. Mm -hmm. we were, of course, one of the biggest things with the dive bombing was to dive and whip up high and see where your bomb went. That oh, was right, that. yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. But, so, you, you had the rockets on the mosquitoes too, didn't you? Yes. <coughs> the, um, they also used to have, it on, on the Harvards, they had a, a weapons course down at Birdlings Flat. We'd go down and live there for, say, a week or ten days, yeah. and they did all sort of air weapons work. That was good. What were you, what were you using? It was on Harvards then. And they did, did, we used to do low-level bombing, dive bombing, um, and air-to-ground attack on targets. Birdling slap on the with, strip with, with the with guns or oh yeah probably but, but yeah. Not, not rockets oh no not, okay. not just just guns yep. just so um was that when you were instructing or was that also when as you, a student as, as a student, student you went through through the course yep. and then as an instructor you took students down there yeah okay. and you'd live there well not always most instructors would would go home every night but I was to sort of quite happy to stay there as a camp commandant because it was so much easier than going backwards and forwards because they left at say four or five at night and they're back again at eight in the morning. Yeah. Just easy to stay there. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, right. Now I've heard that a lot of the pilots preferred the two seat vampires to the single seat. Did you find that or No, not really. Did you find them much the same to fly or didn't make a difference, no. Okay. Mm. That's interesting. Maybe I just like to be yes. like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> There's something nice about being on your own, anyhow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Uh, what, what about um, with 75? Did you do air displays, any air show work, that sort of thing? But with with, with vampire, the vampires, yeah. I didn't know, but the vampire had an aerobatic team at that stage. Yeah. I wouldn't win it. <coughs> so that would have been around about the time of the jetabatics, was it? Oh, that's right, yes. That's yeah. 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 They had a pretty good team going, apparently. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, You've seen the film, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? With Trevor Bland and yeah, Colin yeah. Rudd. And you were all those blokes. Yeah. 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 Right. Yes, a lot of old familiar names. I don't know where they are now. Well, those two are dead, so... Yeah, that's it. Well, I'm yeah. still lucky I'm still surviving. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, and uh, when you went to England to get the... Were you attached to a squad, an operational squadron to...? No, we did the what the, um, the Bomber Operational Unit in Bassingbourne, mm -hmm. and that was simply a training, just a training effort, that's all. 
It was just a camber training unit. And we just trained there on the cambers. And then we just waited then, then went up to Lincolnshire to do more conversion to pick up the aeroplane in Lincolnshire, then flew to Singapore. Okay. Yeah. So that trip to Singapore must have been uh, an interesting one too. I mean, mm. yeah, that was good. Yeah. Pr probably a, a bit quicker than in the Devon. A little bit quicker. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. And not so far, only to Singapore, not to New Zealand. Mm. Yeah. Uh, what was the route for that then? Do you remember? I've got to think now. Mm. Yeah, I can't quite remember exactly. If you want to, I can always get it for you. It's a be in, be in the logbook. Yeah, I'd actually like to have a look at your logbook later if that's yeah, possible. Okay. But, uh, yeah, okay. <coughs> it uh, doesn't matter. Um, mm. And then at Singapore, once you arrived there and formed the squadron, you would have been based there a couple of years, was it? Two and a half years. Well, <coughs> We'd been away, for, I'd been away the country for three years, six months on my own, away from the family, mm -hmm. and then down to Singapore, and only when we arrived in Singapore did the Air Force allow our wives and families to come up, and that took them three days in the back of a Hastings, from Auckland to Singapore, with, with, with my wife with two little kids, uh, and then we stayed there for another two and a half years. Right. And that was great. Did that irk that you couldn't take your family to England when you were there? That's the Air Force way of doing it. That's one of the things that helped me finally decide to leave the Air Force at the end. Yeah. It was just too unsettling yeah. for the family. Yeah. Changing schools and particularly our daughter was, couldn't cope very well and so it was not fair on, on my hobby wafer. That was once at six months. And one other time there I was away over in Australia um, and only came back about a month before our second child was born, that type of thing, which is pretty, pretty tough. Yeah, yeah. So tough on everybody. Tough on everyone, yeah. yeah. So that was another reason I'd, when I finally got out was getting towards a, a ground job and I couldn't sort of see any future apart from ground jobs. That was bad. And then the unstable life, not having my own home and that type, always rented, never never settling down, tough on the family, yeah. and I had a chance of joining Air New Zealand, so I resigned the Air Force and joined Air New Zealand. Right, and right, okay. Best thing ever did. Excellent. So at Singapore, um, your role there, you were involved in the, the squadron was involved in the Malayan. Yes, yes, yes. So tell me about what you were really doing, because I don't really know what the Canberras were. Well, what it was, <coughs> it was when the communists and all there in Malaya were having, the army would go in and find out where the, the camps were, the communist camps. Then they'd go through the, the Air Force. Then we'd come over in formation and bomb them. Right. That was it, yeah. So it's sort of level, level formation bombing sort of thing? Yeah, yeah about 10,000 feet. Okay. We'd go in formation to be a lead bomber and the others there were having and your lead bombers they left there for all that type of thing. Then when he cooked broadcast bombs away, they'd all drop their bombs at the same time and spread the spread the target. Mm. Right. Now I know one of the people who was involved in that and I think he was on the first bombing operation was Peter Pennell. Who? Peter Pennell. Knew him well, he was on the same squadron. Yep. Yeah, well, he, he was from Cambridge here too. I think oh he okay. Was, yeah. yeah. Grew up here. Um yeah, uh, so um, you wouldn't really have much chance to see the the result of no, what you're doing, would you? No, no. We're bombing trees from our point of view. 
we didn't know. But then we get the results back later on. It was very, very nice to suddenly say that you get a result back to say the camp was, you know, it was good bombing run at that time. Yeah, yeah. Because the, the army was right there on the ground. They'd go it? down there. Yeah. Okay. So were you getting a lot of success or was it hit and miss? Apparently so, no. Oh, pretty, right. pretty successful. Mm. Well, that's good. And keeping up the, uh, the 75 squadron reputation then? Yes, yeah. Was there a lot of uh, emphasis on the tradition of what had come before with yes. the squadron? There yes, was. yes. Okay. That's good. I guess, you know, when you're at Ahakia, you probably would have got visited by older guys coming and having a look around? Or? Oh, yes, especially on Air Force Day in that time, yeah. yeah. Mm. And I guess you would have found that quite interesting to meet these yeah. guys. Well, that's the whole thing. The 75 Squadron had such a reputation. Yeah. You know, to, be, to be in, <coughs> in 75 was something. <laughs> it was quite an elite squadron, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, right yeah. up until the end. Yeah, uh, with the I, was a, I was in it seventy-five three times: uh, mosquitoes, vampires, and canberras. Yeah, mm. so, I spent cool. a lot of time with seventy-five squadron. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty cool. Mm. Um, so, the, what was the Canberra like to fly as an aircraft? Great, nice, nice. Yeah, lovely aeroplane, twin-engine. Uh, could it we used to do most of the work like in Malaya was at higher level. We'd be up as high as fifty thousand feet. Wow. Very high. Hand flying all the time. Mm. Two man crew. Uh, <coughs> I was my navigator. We crewed together as a crew. We've always stuck together right through from training days right through to when we both virtually came home together. Okay. Mm. Who was your nav? Chap called Ron Russell. Okay. He was an Englishman. But, uh, I knew him well, and we sort of crewed up. The very first two people that did the training, there's myself with Ron Russell, then Ian Gallard, and he was crewed with a chap called Ron McFarlane. Oh, yeah, I knew Ron, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. We the first two crews to be trained. Oh. But Ron had been in the Pacific on Ventura, is not That's right, yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And then, of course, we went back, <coughs> and, um, and we were... The flight commanders for the 75 squadron. Okay. Mm. Oh, right. Well, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. So, which flight was yours? Oh, just just flight commander. No, just a, everyone. I mean, you'd be a flight commander, and then you'd rotate, and he'd be the flight commander. Then I would, yeah. Gotcha. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Then after a while, later on, then they did other things. Dave Crook was made one simply for experience. Yeah. Okay. Otherwise, your second commander, the Oh, the boss, that's all. Yep. Yep. You get a little bit more responsibility, yeah. and does it give you a little bit more pay as well? Or? No. Yeah. <laughs> Usual no. Air Force? No. No. Pay no. <laughs> pay never came in, I never thought of it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, uh, what about the social life up in Singapore? What was that like for the school? It was good. We, we were fortunate. Way things turned out, we ended up by having a station house. There's only three station houses: the CO, the naval leader, a chap called Colin Hansen, yep. uh, and and myself. Um, the rest of them lived off station in different sort of estates, so we were living in on station with the Royal Air Force, which was good. We walked to the mess, walk up the hill, and that type of thing, mm-hmm. um, and we didn't do any social life much for a while, but then later on we got settled in. We'd sort of 
go with Mar Mar Margaret and I will head into town to the summer restaurant, nice restaurant, and have a nice evening meal out and all that type of thing. And yeah, yeah. That was good. It was a good lifestyle. Excellent. Okay. Nice casual drive in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And, and was there a lot of squadron activities with um, everybody getting together and socialising? Not, not really, no. We'd, we'd meet. <coughs> the Royal Air Force had different hours of bar. Hours now, commanding officer. He actually organised it that could they open the bar early, and we used to turn around and, like, after flying on a Friday, we'd like to go and have a few drinks at five o'clock, not wait till eight o'clock at night. We'd all go home so at five o'clock, which was good. That was our social life there, yeah. just in, in the officers' beers, okay. which is good for me because I could walk home. Yeah, yeah. So, at what point did you come back home from Singapore? Was that 19. No, Christmas 1960, yeah. yes, I, I came back, I was promoted then, came back and as the officer commanding of CFS. Right, okay. Mm. So you, you would have led the team then, I guess, would you? Be fine. Did you lead the team then? No, no. Oh, okay. I was about to say, the team was established. But um, the team was already established there, but I, when we sort of did anything, I'd, so I'd go away with the team and do the solo aerobatics. Oh, right. Mm. Excellent. Mm. I was going to say, because it's quite unusual, but it's usually the CO is the team leader. But Yeah, well, the team was established, so it's right. not, you don't break up a team. No, no. Yeah, no. yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. Um, so you're back down at Wigram. Yes. How long for? Uh, I was there for about a couple of years. Then I stayed at Wigan the post of the office commanding of all the ground training. Oh yeah. And then there for another year. And then I was posted to Air Department as a staff officer for all the flying training of the Air Force. Okay. Mm. So what rank did you get to? Squadron leader. Okay, that's mm. quite a, that's quite a, a responsible job for a squadron yeah, leader, yeah. isn't it? Well these of course those days, squadron leader is the equivalent of a wing commander today. It's all yeah. squadron leader's class is senior. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So I went up to um, Wellington, it would be about 1964, that bracket, I think. Yeah, I only spent a year in Wellington, mm -hmm. and I got out. That must have been quite an interesting time to be in air staff because that was the period where most of the equipment was about to be replaced, wasn't That's it? That's right. There's a process of doing the helicopters. And that right. Yeah. Yep. So, um, did you have anything to do with that, or was it just you, you'd hear stuff None from at all. friends? None or? at all. No, nothing at all. No, I just did the... I was tied up with all the organisation of the flying training. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, interesting. Um, so you were there for about a year. And is that when you got out to...? Yes, well in the meantime, um, part-time one of the chaps in civil aviation asked me would I like to <clears throat> do some work for them at the Aero Club. Oh, yeah. So I said okay, so they, I set my exam, got my private pilot's licence, then on the weekends I used to go at the Wellington Aero Club and instruct them, that kept my hand in, and then of course when I had a chance of getting to Air New Zealand, um, at that stage the Air New Zealand were negotiating to buy the DC-8s, the first jets, and they're the only jet pilots in the country were Air Force. Right, oh yeah. So I applied, even though I was a little bit older than most of them, 
um, I applied and I was accepted. And um, so I resigned from the Air Force and joined Air New Zealand. Okay. Did 17 years with them. What was the training um, process to get onto the DC-8 then from Peter? Well, I, when I first went, I went on to, still had electors. Yep. So I had to do an electric had to do an uh, electric training course, the same as the engineers, mm-hmm. all together. Then I did a conversion on the electors. Then I stayed as a co-pilot on the electors until you sort of move up. And then when you sort of go up further up the ladder as such, then you go to a co-pilot on the DC-8s. So I had to do a DC-8 conversion course again, the whole lot again, and then convert it on the DC-8s and stayed on the DC-8s as a co-pilot. Then when you get towards the stage of being a captain, you go back to the junior aeroplane. You don't just be a captain. I went back as a captain on the electors. Right. And then okay. stayed there. So sort of step backwards. Yeah. And then up again. Then up again. Then you join the, the ranks again. Because they have the idea, irrespective of your previous experience, first on, last off. You join the bottom of the ladder. You've got to accept that. And when I first joined, as a co-pilot, my captains were some of my ex-students, because they joined. They joined. <laughs> They've beaten you to it. <laughs> that's the way it is. That's, yeah, yeah. You know, that's you had to. If you didn't accept it, don't join. Yeah, yeah exactly. <coughs> all right. Um, so all of the training was done in house. You didn't have any overseas courses. No, no, all done, all done in Auckland. Hmm. So where did they get their first jet captains? Then were they? Uh, they they went over to England, over to America and did their conversions in, right. in America. Then they flew, the senior blokes flew the aeroplanes out. Right, gotcha. Then they set up the conversion school in Auckland. Okay, yep. Oh, interesting. Mm. Yeah, they're almost a forgotten uh, entity, the DC-8s, aren't they? They're sort yes, of yeah. gone from the... Great aeroplane, though. Oh. Yeah. Be... I, I was very fortunate on the Electra, so I was the last one to fly an Electra. Okay. Mm. I was down, down in Wellington. And the crew did the Wellington Sydney one. I'd, I'd done the Wellington Melbourne and back to sitting in Wellington. Yep. The other crew next day went to Wellington Sydney. When they land back, they said, We've done the last flight. I said, No, you haven't, because I'm going to fly it up to Auckland now. So I flew it up from Wellington to Auckland, and that was the last time the uh, electors were flown. Right, okay. So where did the electors go to? Were they sold to another airline? I don't know where they end up. I don't know. Oh, that's interesting. They've been the, the last of the service, yeah. Wow. Then I stayed on the DC-8s. I was due to, <coughs> should have gone to the DC-10s. DC-10s, yeah. But then I only had about four or five years left to go, so I applied that could I stay on the 8s. Okay. But I couldn't see any sense in doing all the conversion again, and I stayed on the, <coughs> on the DC-8s um, as a route training captain as well. Okay. And I finished off my time with DC-8s, which suited me better. Now, where were, where were you flying to in the DC-8s, usually? Oh, um, Honolulu, Los Angeles, Tahiti, Rarotonga, Fiji, Samoa, Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, Singapore, Hong Kong. Wow, it's quite a varied, uh, yeah. every day is a different place, I suppose. Well, we had the option, within reason, <coughs> of flying either the American side or the eastern side, and I selected, so I'd rather fly the eastern side. Okay. Although it was more interesting 
than going up through America and that type of thing. It didn't appeal to me. That long haul over water to sit in Los Angeles. Oh, and, and that's right. Then later on, too, the DC-8s went to Japan, but I wasn't on that. Okay. Uh, I had the chance. I said, no, I'll just stay on the Tasman. Well, the Tasman suited me better because it was all short trips, which means I'd get two trips a day. I'd share, share with the co-pilot, but more flying, more takeoffs, more landings. Go away, work for four or five days, and come home. The sitting in a hotel in Tahiti after a while becomes absolutely boring. People say, oh, it's lovely. It's not. Yeah. You're sitting and saying, I'm here for three days. What, what do I do? Yeah. Oh, we used to go to Rarotonga as well. Okay. Mm. Oh, right. Wow. It's fascinating. Uh, it's, it's sort of an, I mean, it's, it's an area that was b before my time, and mm. you just don't hear much about it. No. And so, when did you retire from the airline? What year? 81. 81, okay. Long time, that's a long time ago too. It is. So, what did you do after that? Have you been retired, retired or...? <laughs> well, we packed up, <coughs> we decided to leave New Zealand. We packed up, the, I had a son there at age 20, the youngest one, and my wife and I, we went to England, had a look around England and Europe. Yep. Then we went to Mel, um Surface Paradise, lived there for six months, didn't think much of that, it was too plastic. Uh, went back to England, had another look round in Germany and that type of thing, then went down and lived in Melbourne for about four years, yep. um, and then decided the time to come home. So we came home about 1986, and thought what to do anyhow, as the son said, why don't you buy a 10 acre block? I said, okay. So we bought 10 acre block up in Coatesville, out of Auckland and had cattle, did cattle and that type of farming, you know, baby farming, yep. and lived there for 26 years till we came down here. Right, okay. Mm. okay. We left up there, the sun was just getting too much for us, yep. getting a bit old by then, and yep. I was sitting up there one day drenching cattle. Margaret was helping me, and I suddenly thought, here we are in our 80s, what the hell are we doing drenching cattle? Yeah. So I said, time is sold up, and the garden was too big for us. Too tough on, on Margaret, she couldn't sort of cope anymore, so with her right, so we sold up and moved into the hotel and sat there for four months while we thought what we're going to do with ourselves. Right. Then was, we wouldn't have come down here if it hadn't been for the family, we would have stayed in Auckland, but okay. came down here because of them. Yeah. And are you enjoying Cambridge? Yes, I miss, miss Auckland. Yeah. I miss certain parts of Auckland, the shopping and the bits and pieces, and my, my old dentist, my old doctor, and that yeah. type of thing. Yeah, yeah. 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 I prefer Auckland. Yeah. But there again, and it's coastal. Yeah, true. And it had an RSA. There's nothing down here. Oh, yeah. And I was also a member of another, another club up there. I've often thought we maybe shouldn't have come down, but well, here's this, five years going on to six, we're still surviving, so we haven't done too bad. Yeah. Mm -hmm. oh, really interesting. And do you keep in touch with anyone that you flew with um, back in the... No, no, yeah. they're all gone. Yeah, yeah. Are you, are you in the 75 Squadron Association? No, no. Would no. you be interested in it? No, or? I don't think so. Or, or the Bomber Command Association? No, maybe? nothing like that, no. no. When you look back over your flying career, do you have a favourite aircraft that you used to fly? What was your...? Uh, 
No. I, I think the left joint don't take a lot of beating. Right, okay. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. That's nice, Aeroplane. Yeah. It's either, they're all good. All good. I don't know. Sort of. I like the DC-8. Yeah. DC-8 was harder to fly. Electra was an easy aeroplane to fly. Okay. Electra was a hard aeroplane to fly. DC-8 yep. DC rather than DC-8 was a very narrow undercarriage and a big aeroplane, very tricky, crosswind, but great. Yeah. <coughs> Two of the best places we go into, as far as I was concerned, was Hong Kong and Wellington. Right. Because they were tricky? Yeah. Yeah. More, more excitement. With Hong Kong, they had the strip this way. <coughs> the, oh, that's the old strip. And they had what they call a checkerboard up on the hills. And you'd fly to the checkerboard at about 400 feet, there and, and turn, be level a checkerboard, and then turn around and get into Hong Kong. Wow. A short strip, great. Especially with the crosswind and that type of thing. It was, it was um, more demanding. And when it's demanding, you, at the end of the day, you think it's worth, it was great. Yeah. 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 Honolulu was nothing. Honolulu, long strip, just. Yeah. You could actually land in Honolulu, never know you landed if you took your time. You could just slowly ease it, ease it down. Yeah. Mm. Did you ever do any flying in light aircraft, you know, recreational flying? No, I wasn't interested. No. no. Do you sort of follow the warbirds and, and, and you obviously went to the mosquito event, mm. but mm. Do, you, do you keep up with what other stuff that's happening with the old aircraft? Oh, now and again when I sit reading the papers, such yes, but <coughs> I've never bothered. I thought about it and... and uh, when I turned 80, my son, he ate very kind of them. He shouted me a ride in a Tiger Moth oh, right. to old reunion. And I thought that was a very nice thought, what have you. That was the first I'd been in a light aircraft, and I thought, no, no, thank you. So after, after stepping out of a DC-8, it's like stepping out of a racing car and driving an old woman, Austin Morris or something. No, no it didn't appeal to me. Yeah. I wasn't interested in aero clubs or light aircraft, no. Did, did you have any um, any scary moments where maybe engine trouble or anything in the air, apart from when you were in the team and you touched wings, was there anything else like that that sort of stands out? Oh, oh not really. We had once in the Canberras, we had a flame out, the engine just stopped. Um, that was once. But then when I joined first joined Air New Zealand, we had a lot of propeller problems. Okay. And um, <clears throat> had quite a lot of times. I'd end up by flying back somewhere on three engines instead of instead of four. I had a bad run at one stage with the with the propellers, and uh, okay. one of the chaps reckoned that I had to go back and learn how to land on four engines. I was so good on three. <laughs> <laughs> little thing, yeah, little things like that. Nothing, nothing serious. It never had any serious things that happened. They were just things that happened in the engine trouble or. Um, Undercarriage trouble once on the DC-8. Oh, yeah. It wouldn't come up, had to turn, dump fuel and come back again. There's a broken strut on the undercarriage. Yep. Uh, not really, not really. But when you actually go right back to the beginning, you said you did 10 hours and you soloed in yes. the Cytomoth. Hmm. Um, tell me about your solo. What was that like? Good, it was just a circuit. 
Just one circuit. One circuit. You, you're told to, the instructor would get out and sit on, on the end of these strip, and it was your, your turn, just turn around, take off, turn around, come around, and land, and come back and pick up the instructor. Okay. And when you went back into the Air Force um, a couple of years later, did yeah. you have to go through that same course again? Yes. And go through the circuit? Uh, oh, no, 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 the... no, not as a navigator, but as a oh, pilot. Of course, yeah, as yeah. a pilot, yes. Yeah. I had to go down to... <laughs> I had to go down to um, Tauri again to do the, the grading school yep. uh, and it was quite funny because one of the checkouts was done by Johnny Checkers himself, you see my OC flying, <laughs> he said, hello Willie, what are you doing here? <laughs> so I flew with him, yeah, he checked me out actually. Mm. Oh, right. okay. mm. So did you find it a lot easier the second time around even though you had a few years? Oh yes, oh hell yes, because I, I had all that... that experience on, on flying on that time because <clears throat> there again I used to do a little bit of unofficial flying uh, swap over seats and that type of thing as a navigator. Yep. In the mozzie? That would be a bit difficult to swap seats wouldn't it? <laughs> Done that. Done that. You ask Rod Dalberg about it. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> and I've flown the Devon. Oh, yeah. uh, and then also too that when the <coughs> when they used to do the air testing of the uh, aircraft uh, at Wigram, I used to go down at night and go on the flight with the test pilots, and they would let me they'd let me fly. Okay. So yeah. I did quite a bit of flying uh, on the test pilots. The instructors would let me have a go, and I'd do a bit of illegal sort of um, flying. Mm. I've flown the Devons as well, even as a navigator. Yep. Uh, at one stage there, that the on a trip there, the old pilot, he's, he was tired or something like that, and he fell asleep. And I so he sat down the back, and I flew quite a bit on the Devon. Okay. Yeah. So, so that was all things and all those. Yeah. Wow. Mm. Brilliant. Mm. Well, thank you very much. I really yep. appreciate it. Okay. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.